sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, and this is Rabbi on the Sideline, where we speak about the intersection of sports and faith. This week, we are joined by a legend and truly in for a treat. Usually, I can memorize the amount of accomplishments of our guests, but I'm going to have to read them because there are so many. Miss Val, coach of the UCLA Gymnastics, Pac-12 coach of the century, seven NCAA championships, 29 Pac-12 and NCAA regional titles. UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame, and if you haven't read this book yet, it's a must. Life is short. Don't wait to dance. We are so honored to be joined by Miss Val, Coach Valerie Condosfield. Thanks for joining us, Miss Val. Thank you so much. This is such an honor. It is an honor for uh, us. You know, we literally are neighbors, at least the time that you were in Los Angeles, just walking distance from Pauley Pavilion. But now you're uh, not in the state of California, but we were able to connect from afar as well. So... I want to speak about your journey because there's so much faith involved and so many times you took leaps of faith in order to get to perhaps places where you didn't even know that you were going to end up. The first piece is the journey to UCLA and gymnastics. And I'm a musician as well, a major in music, specifically in piano. And seeing that crazy story of the piano actually got you to Poly Pavilion. So what was that about? And Whoever dreamed that you would be in Poly Pavilion at UCLA? You know, Rabbi, people ask me all the time. So did I grow up wanting to coach? And was that my dream? And it's like, I never even thought about it. I was a ballet dancer. <clears throat> and I grew up studying classical ballet and piano. And uh, fun little fact, gymnastics floor routines before 1980 could only be one instrument. And they mm. were usually piano. And so when I was 16 years old, I wanted a summer job and I called a local gymnastics club because I wanted to be their dance coach because I love gymnastics, but I'd never taken gymnastics. And the gentleman, the head coach whom I was speaking with uh, said, we don't have money for a dance coach. But he, in our discussion, he found out I played the piano. Mm -hmm. And so he said, we need a pianist for our floor routines. And so I was like, okay. And some of them, like the compulsories were played live. Um, and that's how I got into the, my introduction to this world of gymnastics. And then I graduated high school and I decided to dance right out of, of high school, not go to college. And I was dancing professionally. Um, and I heard via this wonderful universe that UCLA needed a dance coach for their gymnastics team and a choreographer. And I, without any hesitation, I found out who the head coach was. I picked up the phone. I told him my credentials and I made the ask. And mm. um, I'll never forget when he said, we don't have a salary to pay you, but if you've not gone to school, I can give you a full scholarship. And I was right. like, done and done. So I retired like that and moved to Los Angeles. That was 1982. So let's talk about the ask because you write about that in your book. And I love it because... You know, when I began in this business, off the pulpit and onto the podcast world, it was all about the ask. I had a list of people that I would have loved to spoke, speak with. I asked and they're here. And you asked, and that is also part of our tradition within Judaism, that it's not about getting the answers, but actually it's about asking the questions. 
So talk about the power of the ask and how you teach others, whether it's your gymnast or either uh, people that you speak to, that the ask is as important as the action. Oh, 100%. You really can't have the action without the ask. And, you know, in the, in the world of sports, which I've spent my entire adult career now, you miss 100% of the swings that you don't take, the mm. shots that you don't take. So um, I, thankfully, I had a mom growing up that encouraged me and my brother to just go for life and to not take things personally when things didn't turn out the way we wanted them to or when somebody said no. Mm -hmm. And so I learned early on how to respectfully ask. Right. And then nine times out of 10, people are busy and you're going to either get shoved to the end of the line or you're going to get a no. And so the most important part of this is really to perfect the nudge without yes. being annoying yes. and then you know when to drop it. You know, sometimes you got to drop it and let time pass and then come back to it. But two, two very important things that transformed my professional career. One was making the ask to come to UCLA. Mm -hmm. And the other was once I was at UCLA and I had been asked to be the head coach and that's a whole other story. Yes. Um, but eight years into my coaching career, a head coaching career, I wanted to meet Coach Wooden, and I had never met Coach Wooden. And I had married our defensive coordinator, Bobby Field, who yep. knew Coach. And I just asked Bobby to invite him over for dinner. And my husband grew up sharecropping in the panhandle of Texas, and Coach Wooden grew up farming in Martinsville, Indiana. So I thought, they can talk about farming. You know, it doesn't have to be about basketball and, and everything. And my husband, the consummate southern gentleman said you know my love coach wooden has got a calendar full of appointments and 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 obligations the last thing he needs is another obligation and i said he can say no and mm -hmm. i nagged my husband for three weeks straight until one day he came home and said okay before you ask me again i called coach wooden and any of you who are listening know that that new coach wouldn't knows that he's got a very sharp sense of humor. And my husband just said, coach, you know, my, my wife and I would love to invite you over for dinner, but we know how many obligations you have in your calendar and we know how full your days are. And we know, and coach wouldn't said, Bobby, I don't mean to interrupt you. Are you inviting me to dinner? Or are you giving me all the reasons that you don't want me to come? Yes. And so with that coach wouldn't came to dinner and that really started a, not just a friendship, but a familial relationship with Coach until the day he died. And mm -hmm. he became my mentor. Mm -hmm. So not only did a ballerina become the head coach of the <laughs> gymnastics team, but I had the greatest mentor on the planet in John Wooden. So when you think about having John Wooden literally in your backyard or in your back office, and I've seen some other speeches that you've given saying, you know, you used to try to imitate other coaches, Bobby Knight, um, and all these, perhaps with um, some anger in their coaching styles. If he wasn't the coach that was next to you, do you think your career would have been different? Uh, I do. I didn't. You know, when I when I start was asked to be the head coach, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and so it wasn't like I tried to imitate Bobby Knight's um anger and all of that, mm -hmm. but it was definitely a dictatorial authoritative style of coaching that we knew, like 
in the 70s, 80s, um, even growing up in the world of ballet. You know, it wasn't, <clears throat> as we say nowadays, a transformational type of leadership. Mm-hmm. It was an authoritative type of leadership. And the coaches that had had the most success in what I thought were this very dictatorial, my way or the highway um, style of transactional coaching. And I thought, well, okay, so I just need to do that. Um, And thankfully, I didn't do that very well. We had a ton of talent on the team, but we did not do well. And I was getting ready to resign. And I happened upon Coach Wooden's Mm -hmm. definition of success. Yes. And he said, success is mind. Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result in knowing you've done your best. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so weird because he'd won 10 out of 12 championships. Coaches are hired to win. Mm-hmm. So success is peace of mind. How does that fit in? And that really was the biggest aha moment of my professional career thinking, okay, if I'm going to do this job, I'm going to do it my way. First of all, he said, success is peace of mind knowing that you have done your best. Yes. I had been trying to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, and what I love to share, especially with young leaders these days, is whenever you try to be somebody else, you will always be a second rate them. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing that happens, it prevents you from being a first rate you. Mm-hmm. So what happened, though, was I started to shift And when I got stuck, I would think, what would Coach Wooden do? And my husband has the very same type of personality and character that John Wooden did, um, a very strong faith. And so I was like, okay, what would Bobby do? But then I was doing the exact same thing. I was trying to be them. And it was 2004. We had won four championships in five years. And the LA Times did a, a piece on me and Coach Wooden. And the reporter said, you're becoming the next John Wooden. And before I could guffaw and say, this is blasphemy, don't say that, Coach Wooden chuckled. And he said, why would she want to be another John Wooden when she can Mm -hmm. be a great Valerie Condos field? Yes. And that was like the last release, the gift that I needed to stop trying to be like anybody else except what God made me Mm -hmm. So that is a sermon, and actually, there's a beautiful story within our tradition about a man who goes to heaven and uh, basically asked, like, you know, were you like Moses? And he said, no, I was like me. I was myself. And it works everywhere. I think it's an amazing story, both wisdom from you, but also from Coach Wooden allowing you to be yourself as well. So you mentioned these words of winning and success, and uh, we'll take a quick look at a TED Talk that you gave in terms of defining what that really means in terms of winning. You say, yes, winning is fun, winning is important, but what is success? But I am here to share my insight. Winning does not always equal success. All across America and around the world, we have a crisis in the win-at-all-cost cultures that we have created in our schools, in our businesses, in politics, winning at all costs has become acceptable. As a society, we honor the people at the top 
So winning has become basically what you need to do. You look at college sports today with NIL, with the transfer portal, with coaches basically who don't win after a certain amount of time. Look at Coach K who didn't win those first couple of years and becomes one of the best coaches, let's say, next to Coach Wood in college basketball. How do we balance that idea that we have to win, but we also have to succeed based on your definition of success? I think it's extremely important for any person who oversees the development of someone else. So whether you're a coach, a teacher, a pastor, a rabbi, a parent, mm-hmm. um, any a mentor, it is super important to define what success looks like beyond the win. Mm-hmm. Because if you're only focusing on the win, then it's only about transactional types of leadership. They're going to get you that medal, get you that straight A, get you the corner office in in your business. What is success and development and, and how can you transform this the person whom you are leading into becoming the better uh, the best version of themselves mm-hmm. through the process so that you are actually developing what I call this champion in life that's going to go out and make the world a better place beyond the win. Mm-hmm. So let's take two examples of that. One is somebody that connected you and me, and that's Ariana Berlin, now Ariana Rothstein. Uh, I got to know Ariana through a crazy way of this universe in 2020 when we had to figure out how to produce a High Holy Days. She was on that production team. And of course, she's also the star of Full Out, where you also are a star in that show. And you find Ariana, who's at SeaWorld dancing after a tragic accident. And this is what you had to say with her hired to work at SeaWorld as their dance talent that Valerie Condos Field, the head coach of UCLA Gymnastics, is directing. I remember her being this great, young, elite, junior Olympic athlete that had gotten in this horrific car accident. The last night of rehearsal, we had just wrapped. I remember it was 11.45 at night. I went up to her and I said, Miss Val, It's been my dream to go to UCLA and to be coached by you. I will go back to gymnastics tomorrow if I can be a part of this team. Honestly, there wasn't. So that's Ariana Berlin. What did you see in her as a break dancer in SeaWorld? And you said, you know, she shouldn't have been as good as she was taking three to four years off of uh, college gymnastics to transform, as you said, her into something that she became. Well, first of all, I want to say, I want to bring your attention to the fact that Ariana Berlin got to UCLA by making the ask. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't ask her. She came up to me the last night of rehearsal and made the ask. And um, just a little nugget there. Absolutely. But what, I saw, what I saw in Ariana was, um, you know, I've studied Coach Wooden's Pyramid of Success, and I teach on that in a class at UCLA. And the cornerstones of the pyramid are industriousness and enthusiasm. Really hard work, but an enthusiasm for that hard work. And when you marry those two things together, I think you can accomplish anything in life that you Mm -hmm. set your mind to. And that is in Ariana's DNA, is that she, like cutting corners is not even something she would ever consider. Mm -hmm. She's extremely hardworking, but she has this, this invincible vision and belief in herself that 
far succeeds anything anybody else would ever think for her. Like even as a coach or her parents, you know, I think Ariana's can accomplish great things. Well, Ariana, the the sky literally is the limit for her. Mm-hmm. And you know her. She's all like Absolutely. five foot nothing, you know, <laughs> barely a hundred pounds. She's like this little pipsqueak that is literally just this phenomenal, powerful force in the world. Absolutely. And another person just like that who, as we say, broke the internet, I think it's now up to 230 million views, is Caitlin Ohashi, who has a different story than Ariana because when she came to you, she said, I don't want to be great again. Usually you get people saying, make me great. But here was a young woman who was under, if you wish, such pressure in her gymnastics world growing up that she said, I don't want to be great again. Here's the video of her breaking the internet, and then we'll hear how you made her great again. Caitlin Oashi here. How, how did you understand that she could be great again? Uh, it was it was kind of like a a, a moment that I really mm-hmm. feel that I, I felt I heard God's whisper when mm-hmm. Caitlin Oashi said, "I don't want to be great again." My very first thought was, "Then what am I paying you sixty thousand dollars a year in a scholarship for?" <laughs> you know, where you're, you're you were brought here and given a full scholarship to do gymnastics at the level at which you were recruited. So. And thankfully, I heard God say, you know, pause. And the reason she doesn't want to be great is because everything associated with that mm-hmm. is misery and, wow. and hurt. And I was like, okay, at that moment, I realized I needed to earn her trust that I cared first and foremost about her as a whole human being. Mm-hmm. And not just the little slice of her that did gymnastics that could help me win another national championship. Mm -hmm. And so I started figuring out how to do that, how to to get her to trust that I cared about her as a whole human being and help her develop because she had never thought about anything besides just being an athlete. Right. You know, there's this whole movement out there with T-shirts. I am more than an athlete. Mm. And so I am. First of all, I did not talk to her about gymnastics unless we were in the gym. Outside of the gym, we talked about everything but gymnastics. And I remember a moment um, in the gym. I had heard a statistic that young girls are on their, young women are on their phones eight hours a day, Mm -hmm. scrolling through social. Mm -hmm. And I was mortified with this stat. And I said, you know, Caitlin, do you think this is true? And she said, I do. And I said, Mm -hmm. are you on your phone that much? She goes, I think I am. I said, so why don't you start using your phone for something that will help you, that will keep your growth mindset, that will teach you something? She's like, like what? And I said, like TED Talks. She had never heard of TED Talks. Wow. So she comes in the next day. Mind is blown. And she said, Miss Val, I spent five hours last night down the TED Talk rabbit hole. And I said, <laughs> what did you find yourself gravitating toward? And she said, anti-bullying TED Talks, um, the, the effects of body shaming, how we can help this, the homeless situation in our world. And that's when Caitlin really started, like the whole person really started to blossom into what she feels her calling is. And that's what I believe she's doing right now after gymnastics, right? Within the San Francisco area and the homeless piece as well. Yes, Absolutely. 
And so you mentioned the word God whisper, and you've mentioned that a couple of times. And one of those other times is not about your gymnastics piece, but your personal life. This is uh, what you said in terms of uh, hearing God whispering to you, being anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. As I'm sitting in my car and my world has stopped and I'm preparing myself for that, I hear very, very clearly, be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And whether you personally translate that to cosmic energy coming to me or the universe speaking to me, I translated that as God speaking to me. So uh, you said it, not me. <laughs> God, God speaking to you. And you took this idea of really changing heartbreak to joy. You called uh, when you needed chemo, not necessarily a curse, but the chemo spa that I'm grateful to get this. I'm grateful to have that. Every morning we say these words, we're thankful that our soul is restored to us. Take us to those moments of being anxious for nothing and gracious for everything. Well, it's, yeah, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have either gotten the call themselves or for a loved one that, mm-hmm. you know, you've got cancer. And I had a very, very aggressive form of cancer. And I heard this, um, be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And I have to say that I do a lot of speaking engagements around the country. And sometimes people will say, you know, you just don't mention the God thing. I'm like, no, I am. You're on the right show, Miss Val. (laughs) It's my story. So I will. You can translate any way you want, but I'm not changing my story. You're on the right Uh, channel. So I, I went home and I told my husband, who grew up Southern Baptist. I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. Our Bible was in Greek. Okay, I don't read ancient Greek. So I was very much a part of the tradition of the Greek Orthodox Church versus the learning of of the faith. So my husband said, yeah, it's in the Bible. And I was like, well, I've never read that. So I went over, checked it out. And for certain, it's it's in the Bible, uh, in Philippians. And I my world stopped. I'm like, this is a commandment. This is not a suggestion to be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. So, but I didn't know how I was supposed to observe the commandment because I was scared out of my mind. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how many more days I had to live. Mm-hmm. And I went to the doctor the next day and she said to me, had you gotten diagnosed 10 years ago, we had absolutely nothing for you. Mm-hmm. But if you choose and choose and choice is one of my favorite words because it's the base of our faith. If you choose to get chemotherapy for a year and you choose to get surgery, I know it's going to work. And I was like, I understand the commandment and how I'm not going to be anxious is through gratitude. Mm-hmm. I don't have to get chemotherapy. I get to get chemotherapy because yes. I live in a time that has the chemo. And so switching that one word have to, to get to not only changed my entire experience that year with cancer and chemo, but it's changed every moment of my life since then. When I start mm. feeling a little down or I start feeling a little depressed or I get a little antsy and, and I don't want to do something, I go, pause, okay, I don't have to do that. I get to do that. Yes. 
and you speak about the power of choice a lot, right? The choice to do something. Um, you mentioned in the book, the stories of different uh, faith traditions. I believe there's a Buddhist tradition. You also mentioned the Native American story, I believe, with the bad wolf or something like that. And that has a parallel also within our tradition. It's called the Yetzer HaTov and the Yetzer Hara. It's the good inclination and the evil inclination. And you speak about the different bubbles, right? That you sort of mm -hmm. don't want to pop. Um, how do you get the to the good bubbles and get the bad bubbles out of there? It's a choice. And unless, you know, unless you have a mental impairment, which sadly a lot of people do, but you have a choice of what I call them thought bubbles. Thought so bubbles, in right. anything that happens in life, I mean, one of my most favorite books is um, Victor Frankl, yes. Answer for Meaning. So in anything that happens in life, there's the stimulus and our response. And when we put space between that, as he so eloquently puts in his book, that we can choose our response. And when you take the time to choose the response versus reacting, you actually are making better choices in your life. They're going to have better repercussions. So a lot of us grow up thinking that, you know, when we have these negative thoughts that we just have to feed those thoughts, you don't. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why we're wired this way, but I don't know about you, but I'm wired where something happens. The negative thoughts are very loud. Yes. And it's up to me to replace those thoughts with a positive thought of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to feed the good th thought bubble so that I can starve the other thought bubble and the negative thought bubble. And from what I understand with brain, the brain may ping pong back and forth a lot but it cannot simultaneously think of two opposing thoughts. So choose one. And what I have found, Rabbi, with my student athletes, it's like the first thing I tell them when I recruit them, life is about choice. Mm -hmm. and every choice you make is going to dictate the life you live. And every yes. choice you make starts with your thoughts. Most of them, I've noticed a trend. They don't get it until about halfway through their sophomore year. Mm -hmm. And once they do get it, they stop being victims in life. Actually, in our, we're supposed to say 100 blessings a day. When I think about why the rabbis taught us to say 100 blessings a day, it seems like so many, but literally over a cup of water before you drink, you thank God that the water has been placed before you, the anxious, gracious piece that you spoke about. But also it's that idea of choice. Choose the blessings. And back in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, um, in Hebrew, it says, I place before you blessing in church, uh, blessing and curse, that you should choose life. And you have that active choice to make in your life as well. And when you think about that, it can easily be the distinction between success and failure. And this is what you said about failure. Luckily, I grew up in a family where my parents never instilled fear of failure in us. I don't believe in the word failure. I believe that failure is simply another F word that somebody made up to make us feel badly about ourselves. And I, it should be erased from the dictionary because, and I'm going to prove to you why failure doesn't exist, because if you set out to achieve a goal and you don't achieve the goal, if you take the time to stop and debrief and think, what, what did I do that was good? What didn't work? What do I need to do better next time? You have learned something. If you learn something in life along the way, how can it be failure? It can't. So I want to talk that in the context of mental health. Actually, when Ariana was on the show earlier in the summer, I was right during the Olympics with Simone Biles. 
and people were saying, oh, that was a failure because she uh, withdrew. Maybe you can speak about the idea of failure of what people see on the beam, see on the floor, et cetera, and what that definition of failure and success really is in terms of the mental health aspect as well within sports. You know, sport is a metaphor for life. And the only reason to really do sport is because it is a master class in life lessons. It's not mm -hmm. about the medals and the trophies at all. Um, it's about everything that it teaches you things you don't learn in the classroom, which I think every single young person needs to be involved in sports. Mm -hmm. um, but the, what I've noticed about the great athletes, when they make a mistake, they don't personalize it. They mm -hmm. simply use it as information as to how to have a different result the next time they do something. So you look at like a quarterback, you look at Tom Brady, yeah. and he throws an errant pass. It like if he takes that time to, to get down on himself, to think of himself as a failure, to have a pity party, mm -hmm. it's gonna take too long for him to regroup. And the good athletes that may just be talented but don't reach that level of greatness, they spend too much time uh, beating themselves up mm -hmm. and thinking of it as failure instead of simply a miscue. It's not failure. It's, it's, it's called life. And as long as you're living, you're going to experience miscues. You're going to have things that you're not thrilled about. You're going to say things that you're not thrilled about. If you, like, how... Until the day you die. I mean, I I say things all the time that I misunderstood and I'm so apologetic about. But apologize for it and move on. Mm -hmm. And so a piece of that is how you understand your constituents, how you understand your athletes. And one of the things that you speak about is how you brought sports psychology or psychology into the locker room onto the mat. And one of those things you did was, I believe, take the, if I'm pronouncing correctly, the Enneagram test. And before I came on the show, I took mine and it absolutely said who I was. And I've been thinking about the leadership and I'm actually with you. I'm at number two with the helper and the caretaker. So I'm, I'm with you. Um, explain how that helps because you speak about the default position and how understanding who a person is will help in the moments where they might be going down the wrong path. Right. So a, per a personality assessment is not to put you in a box. Mm -hmm. any, person in any personality assessment all of us have all of those different types of personalities within us. It is what shows up when you are not choosing your response, your default. And so I, the reason I love the Enneagram <laughs> is because Enea, uh, Greek, nine, nine different personality types are within all of us. Um, it really takes the commonalities between the, all the religions and the philosophies. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, there's a commonality that, that all of these faiths agree to, personality types. Um, and so when something happens and there's that stimulus, when you're in a negative part of your personality assessment, when you're in an unhealthy part of your personality assessment, like I'm a two, I'm a helper. You and mm -hmm. I, we want to, we want to be loved. <laughs> We do things to be loved, but when we are unhealthy, we get manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to say I get manipulative, mm -hmm. but knowing that I can then, as Mr. Victor Frankel shared with us, I can choose my response differently, knowing this is how I get. And so we would do the, the personality assessment every single year with our entire team 
and our entire staff, we would have uh, somebody come in, a professional come in and go over this with us. We would put this up on the board. And what it did was what I saw when any of the student athletes would have an issue with each other or they'd have an issue with a coach. Mm-hmm. It gives them a it gives them a moment to pause. It encourages them. It invites them to pause and give the other person grace mm. that nice. they are being triggered. And so what I saw, especially with a group of, I coached 18 to 22 year old young women who can be mean girls. Okay. <laughs> what I saw was it actually invited them to be less judgmental of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's not a pass. It's not like you get a pass, but it gives you that moment of giving someone grace to be able to say, you know what? They're going through something right now and they're being triggered. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and just give them some space. And I love that because one space that we use, which is probably most difficult for people is silence. And I just used the teaching that I found in your book yesterday for a different teaching where the same letters of silent are listen. That was like eye-opening to me. Never realized that. The same letters to listen are for silent. And actually in the Hebrew, the same words to listen, it's Shema, the declaration of our faith in the book of Deuteronomy, is really means to observe. And so when you observe somebody, you are listening. And often when you observe somebody, you have to be quiet. As Viktor Frankl said, you have that response. So maybe talk about silence and listening and how you have that as a coach, you know, in those, take us, take us to an NCAA championship in that moment. Are you dabbing in somebody's ear? Or are you stepping back in those moments of silence and listening? Well, if you have a few moments, if you have a few minutes, go to YouTube and pull up 2018 national championship, Peng Peng Lee. Um, it was the greatest comeback in sports history. We won that championship. And our last event was Balance Bee. And I didn't know it at the time. Our student athletes didn't know it at the time. But they had to average a 9.95 of five athletes. There are six <laughs> athletes that compete. They had to average a 9.95 in order for us to tie Oklahoma. None of us knew this, though. But let me tell you, of, there were five other teams on the floor not one other athlete had gotten one nine nine five on mm. beam the whole night. We had to get five out of six. And as a coach, your job is to get them into the right frame of mind to be their best. And so when I went up to my first athlete, I have a cue for every single one right. of our athletes that I tell them. Before I could tell her her cue, she grabbed my hands, she looked me in the eye, she said, Miss Val. I got this. And because I was, as you were saying, I was observing her mm-hmm. and listening. I trusted her and I, I shut up and I backed away. And I did that for the six, every single athlete up there grabbed my hands and said something to that effect. Miss Val, I'm going to give the best performance of my life. Wow. And I backed away. And we won the national championship. I absolutely 100% know that had I led from my ego Mm -hmm. and didn't listen and observe them and then trust them, they would have played just a little bit tight. Mm -hmm. And that would have been literally just like a blink the wrong way. We would have not won that championship. Mm -hmm. I, I, 
I contribute that the best coaching I've ever done. And I didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Yes. The best coaching is silence. Um, actually, I, my, my senior rabbi, Rabbi David Wolfie of Sinai Temple, one of his genius techniques of speaking, of orating, is the master of the pause, right? The master of the pause. Um, thinking, what will come next? And I think it's a beautiful way not just to speak, but to coach and to, to live one's life, not always it, being in it, the front. It truly is. And it's like what, what we, I think what we're, what we grow up learning to do is as you're speaking, I'm formulating what I want to say next, especially if we're in an argument mm -hmm. where I, I have to be right. Mm -hmm. And, and it's really a skill. It's something that I work on every single day, quieting my mind so I can truly listen to you and observe you. And mm -hmm. in doing so, I actually have a better response. Yes, that is so true. A better response through silence, a better response through observation. Two more questions. The first is your book. If you haven't read it, again, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. I was a little nervous to uh, read this book because my two feet don't really work together. And to uh, speak to an expert dancer who became a gymnastics coach, it's, uh, uh, the nerves were there. But the last story you share is with Coach Wooden, and that seems to why, why, why you named the book this, in that perhaps you waited a little long to dance. Maybe you can share that story about uh, Coach Wooden and his wife, Nan, and the importance of to move your feet, even when it might not be as comfortable as you think. Yeah, well, dance is a metaphor for anything in life that makes your heart sing. Mm -hmm. So because, and I felt this when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was like, oh my gosh, I knew I wasn't going to die from the breast cancer. But none of us know our expiration date. None of us, I didn't know how many more days I had. And I wasn't going to waste one day not mm -hmm. doing things that make my heart sing. And for me, that is starting every morning with quiet time, with, with God, and just in gratitude. That sets up my day. Um, but as I was writing the book and thinking about the titles for it, every time I was with Coach Wooden, it seemed like the end of his, his life, every single time, somebody would say, you know, Coach, you've lived an impeccable life. Do you have any regrets? And he would always sit there with his arms folded and his little blue eyes would start to mist up. And he lost his wife many, many years before. Mm -hmm. uh, he lost his wife in 1985 and coach died in 2010. And Nellie, his wife, loved to dance. And coach Wooden retells the story and says, I never danced with my wife because I'm not a good dancer. Mm -hmm. And I was worried that people would make fun of me. And as his eyes are tearing up, he said, but... I realized too late that if I was dancing with my wife, people wouldn't be making fun of me. They would see two people deeply in love dancing. Mm -hmm. He said, so if I have to do it all over again, I would dance with my wife. Wow. And so when I do book signings after, when I tell that story for speaking engagements and I do book signings, I can't tell you how many older gentlemen come up and say, thank you, Miss Val. I'm going to go home and dance with my wife. I'm like, great. <laughs> What a metaphor, because you actually speak about the choreography of life as well. And so how do you gain the trust from these athletes, or how did you when you were uh, the coach at UCLA? You often say that you didn't do a cartwheel until you were in your 50s. 
How does somebody who comes in that is, if you wish, better than you at the sport that you're trying to coach them, how do you gain that trust in coaching them of what they need to do? You know, I have done a lot of thinking about leadership, especially since I'm teaching this class at UCLA. And what I know now that I didn't really know then, but that I acted on then, because I knew nothing, I couldn't pretend <laughs> to have all the answers. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes that leaders make, especially young leaders, is thinking that they're supposed to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And then they posture. And mm -hmm. as soon as you do that, that's your tell. Nobody's going to believe you or want to be led by you. And so because I knew nothing, I had to ask 100 questions a day. I would ask the student athletes. And, and, and it's been proven now. One of the best ways to teach someone is to ask them. Mm -hmm. what they're feeling, what they're thinking. What were you thinking before you did that skill on being? What, what went right? What went wrong? And I've now realized that one of the best ways to lead, even in parenting, is to model the behavior that you would like to see from those, that person whom you're leading, right. including model humility. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't have all the answers. Model vulnerability. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Model what a sincere apology sounds like and model how to move on from that apology. Mm -hmm. That is my definition of a great leader. Someone modeling how to get through the muck of life without pretending to be perfect and have all the answers. And so you just mentioned the muck of life. It was really interesting to me that when you started your book, you started on a very difficult note of what was happening in the athletic world and the gymnastic world, specifically with your gymnasts who confessed to you that they, with the, I believe Dr. Nasser, were abused during their times of gymnasts. You start with that piece. Why do you bring that up right in the forefront? And how did you get them out of the muck of life in such a positive way? Well, I bring it up because um, it was it was 2018. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was publishing my book. So it was relevant. I bring it up because it, it sets up life, you know, life. We were ne never guaranteed easy. In fact, we were guaranteed the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, God tells us there are going to be trials and tribulations. So to think that you're, anybody's going to go through life easy and as we all know, some things are much more devastating and horrific than, than others. But I brought that up, just kind of set the book up that this is not a feel-good story. This is not a story about a seven-time national championship coach who's going to tell you how to go about winning in life. This book's going to be about life. Mm -hmm. And um, in 2018, you know, it's a coach's... Part of my job is to not invite distraction into the competition season and smack dab in the middle of our competition season is when these impact statements started happening in Michigan against Larry Nassar. And one of our assistant coaches, Jordan Weaver was in Michigan as we were flying to Arizona to compete. She was in Michigan giving her impact statement. Wow. So I had a team meeting that night and I did exactly what, in the coaching rule book, you're not supposed to do. I invited distraction. And mm -hmm. I told the girls, I said, listen, we're not going to pretend like Jordan missed the bus. She's in Michigan doing the hardest thing she's ever done in her life, looking her abuser in the eye and telling her story. 
how are we going to support her when she comes back? Mm-hmm. And so that opened the discussion with the team and they were all a hundred percent. I mean, they, they literally that galvanized them to be even tighter. And then a few weeks later, uh, Kyla Ross, who was on our team, she was a sophomore. Kyla's not one to talk very much at all. She came in my office and she just started talking, talking, talking about school and books and boys and her family. And I was like, again, I heard God whisper to me, mm. don't interrupt her, let her talk and it will come out. Mm-hmm. And after two hours of this person who doesn't mm-hmm. normally talk in my office talking and me just going, uh-huh, uh-huh. She took a deep breath and she said, I want to tell you something that I haven't told anybody. And I just realized last night that I was sexually abused by Larry Nassar. Mm. And I said, okay. And she said, but I'm not a victim. I said, okay, would you agree that you were victimized? And she said, yes, but I refuse to let him dictate how I'm going to live my life. Mm. Mm -hmm. I said, Mm -hmm. okay, so do you want to share this with the team? Would you like to, you know, go speak with counselor? Would you, you know, I am not a professional in, in psychology handling this. So we got her set up. We did share it with the team. And we go on to win the national championship that same year that I told you I did my best coaching. And after all the hoopla, after all of the awards, the confetti, the whole bit, the balloons, I'm picking up my bag to go to the bus to leave the arena. And Kyla Ross comes up to me and she said, Miss Bell, I just want you to know the reason why we won this championship was because you chose to address the elephant in the room. And by doing so, you gave us all words to fit the emotions Mm. that we were feeling that we did not know what to do with. And she said, I literally felt myself walk taller as the season went on simply because I had been heard. Wow. That story is only one of so many that you, Miss Val, have been part of that not only lifts those gymnasts up, but literally millions that have and continue to follow your career. And so the final question is, you've retired from UCLA Gymnastics, and you were quoted in an interview saying, I believe that, you know, you, you've done everything that anybody could even imagine in the athletic world. And even though you could have done more, maybe it wasn't, I, I believe, either giving you inspiration or it, maybe just address that. Why did you walk away at that moment when you could have continued to keep going? Because I really feel that I have been blessed with um, this a creative mind. I love working on live shows. Like I, that's where I met Ariana down at SeaWorld. Mm-hmm. I have got some film projects. Actually, we're in production right now doing a documentary on the 2018 National Championship. Oh, nice. Um, I wanted to be, my speaking career was taking off. I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to teach this class at UCLA. And I just felt like I retired at the age of 60 when I felt that I still had <laughs> the mental wherewithal, the physical ability, and the enthusiasm to do other things that God has, has blessed me with. I'm not, none of us are one dimensional. Mm-hmm. So I want to go, you know, I plan on living to be over a hundred. So I just want to go experience more of life out there. Mm-hmm. And 
I knew it was the right time. And I, I honestly say 100%, I enjoyed every single day of my 37 years at UCLA, mm-hmm. even through all of the muck, even through the hard times. I enjoyed the struggle of figuring it out. But my last few years, I realized I was no longer inspired by the work. Mm-hmm. And so I felt that was the time to turn the program over to someone else. It was, I would be doing UCLA a disservice if I just kept hanging on. And so finally, what is your message to the young people who are spending hours in gyms, whether it's gymnastics or basketball or soccer or baseball or ballet or piano or art? What is the message for them to achieve success, to win, and to achieve failure? Okay, so I'm going to name drop a big name right now. Let's do it. Kobe Bryant. I (laughs) was very fortunate enough to have a one-hour, one-on-one with Kobe. And we talked the entire time about how important it is to infuse joy in every single thing you do in life, especially those things that you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. The hard Mm -hmm. stuff that we don't want to do. So if you're in, if you're in, in school and you love math, but you hate English, figure out a way to enjoy the challenge of learning English. If you're an athlete and you happen to be very flexible, but you're not very strong, figure out a way, like tap into that competitiveness within you to bring the joy to condition, strength and conditioning. And as Kobe said, his joy was getting up at 4.30 every morning and putting in two hours of work before the team showed up. Because joy is not fun. Like to me, fun is external. Mm -hmm. Joy is internal. Mm. Joy is what we build that thing inside of us that comes from a job well done that nobody can take away from you. Mm -hmm. So find the joy in whatever you do in life. Miss Val, Pac-12 Century Coach of the Year, or Pac-12 Coach of the Century. Seven national titles, 29 Pac-12 titles, author of Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. God truly gave us the blessing to hear from you, from all the blessings that you have given us over the decades that you have graced the UCLA campus. We look forward to when you're back in Los Angeles to visiting us here at Sinai Temple, and we just thank you for your blessing. I would love it. Thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you in person. Thanks.